Good morning, everybody. We're going to be reading from Nahum 1, verse 9 through 2, verse 2. On the Pew Bibles, it's page 782. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. For you came, uh, from you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandment about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave for you are vile. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah, fulfill your vows, for never again will the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. The scatterer has come upon you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel, for the plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. Turn your Bibles to Nahum chapter 1, page 782. If you're looking at the Pew Bible from the seat in front of you, if I asked you this morning, is vengeance a good thing or a bad thing? What would you answer? Now it's a rhetorical question. Don't start actually answering, but. I'm going to tell you the answer is that it's a bad thing in the hands of men. But in the hands of God? In the hands of God, is it a good thing? We might be tempted to say it's a necessary thing, but is it a good thing? And the passage this morning tells us that yes, God's vengeance is a good thing. Back in chapter 1, look, look at verse Chapter 1, verse 2 says, The Lord is a jealous and what avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. This is a good, this is a good implication of God's nature. It is a good thing. And that's what we're going to see in this passage today. We're not, going to see, we're not just going to see that God is an avenging God. We're going to see what that means for his people. In this passage today, we have three oracles of judgment interwoven with three corresponding oracles of comfort. So you get a, an oracle of judgment against Assyria and then an oracle of comfort. An oracle of judgment and an oracle of comfort. An oracle of judgment and an oracle of comfort. And it's going to feel like that because they are completely interwoven. They're braided together. They cannot be separated. Last week we looked at last week Josh preached on the character and coming of God in judgment. And then after the after today's passage, we only for the rest of the book of Nahum, we only get a visceral description of God warring and fighting against his enemies like a mighty warrior with no interwoven oracles of comfort to Judah. And so this passage today has a special significance in this book. After this there are no more breaks of God speaking to his people words of comfort. 
So, so we get judgment and comfort, judgment and comfort, which means this passage is not just about God's wrath against his enemies. It's about the comfort that God's people are meant to feel in God's wrath against his enemies. Now, we're not used to thinking like that and talking like that. The comfort that we are meant to feel regarding God's wrath towards his enemies. We're not used to thinking like that, talking like that. The main point of this passage today is that God's judgment of the wicked is meant to be a hope and comfort for our souls. Now, that's jarring, I know. That might feel unsettling to hear that God's judgment of the wicked is meant to be a hope and comfort for your soul. Do you feel a tension in that? You should feel a tension. There is a right tension, right? Should we, should, shouldn't we grieve about God's judgment of the wicked? Yes, of course we should. Ezekiel 18 makes clear that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked and neither should we, and yet it's true that this passage still tells us that God's judgment of the wicked is good news that we are meant to find hope and comfort in. How can that be? If you feel that tension, you need to stay tuned in because that's what this passage shows us. It shows us why God's judgment of the wicked is actually meant to be good news of comfort for your soul and for my soul. And my goal for us this morning is that as we, as we look at this passage together, as we, as we look at the God, God's promise of judgment, we would actually get a sense of that comfort without blushing about it. This is part of who God is. This is part of what it means to be Orthodox Christians is believing that God is both overwhelmingly gracious and loving towards sinners and brings judgment on the wicked who refuse to repent of their sin. Let's jump into the passage. Verses 9 through 11 is the first oracle we have of God's judgment towards Assyria. Okay? And notice in verse 9, we, right away, we, we get the question, what do you plot against the Lord? And then in verse 11, um, the Lord is speaking to probably a king of Assyria who was leading the effort in this plotting. He says, from you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Okay, this is important because right out of the gate, it shows us that these people who are harming Judah are not just stumbling into sins of ignorance, are they? They're not helplessly bumbling along and they just happened into some grievous sin. No, no, no. These people are scheming and plotting against the Lord, this passage says. They're premeditating acts of violence and cruelty of the most barbaric nature against God's people. This is grievous sin indeed. These people are worthy of judgment. These are not people who your first impulse should be. We should show them. These are people who we should see are, are grievously premeditated, evil. They're pushing cruelty. They're slaughtering people. They're plotting actively how to do this. These people are deserving of judgment. We need to get this. This is not a people that, that God hasn't shown mercy to already. These are people whom God has shown mercy to, and they're still plotting cruelty and violence. Okay, and notice it says, notice this says, what do you plot against the Lord? That's interesting. These people are probably not actively looking up to heaven and saying, all right, Lord, we're going to come after you up there. No, these people are, are actually have their eyes on Judah, the nations around them. But why does it say, why do you plot against the Lord? 
This is important. Because the Lord has bound himself to his people. The Lord has bound himself to his people in his covenant. They are his people. He is their God. And for them to plot against his people is for them to plot against God. And this is true of us as well, right? Jesus Jesus appears in Acts 9 to Saul of Tarsus. And what does he say? He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting who? Not my people, but why are you persecuting me? Because Jesus has bound himself to his church. God has bound himself to his people. And so for God to watch a nation like Assyria plunder and assault his people, plot against them, violence, is for God to take that personally as them assaulting and plotting against him. Are you already getting a sense of why God's judgment is a comfort to his people? Because God has bound himself to us and he takes violence against us personally. And he will respond to it in kind. Now, God is addressing these people who are plotting against him. And what does he say that will happen with his plotting? He says, verse 9, What do you plot against the Lord? It says, He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. They're like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They're consumed like stubble, fully dried. What is the Lord saying here? He's talking about their plots. This, this oracle is about their plots. He's saying their plots won't succeed, basically. I love the way the NIV says it. It says, what you plot against the Lord, he will make a complete end of. You don't, if you're reading the ESV like I do, you don't quite get that connection. The point is God is seeing they're plotting against him, and he's going to make an end to their plots. And the result of that end that he's making to their plots is that trouble will not rise up a second time. God is going to thwart their plotting. I love that he says trouble's not going to rise up a second time. I mean, the Lord's just like, hey, when I throw a haymaker, it's a one-hit knockout every time. You're not getting up afterwards. How effective are their plots going to be? Look at verse 10. He says their plots are going to be made an end of. How effective are they going to be? They're going to be as effective as entangled thorns. You ever tried to untangle thorn bushes? It's not a pleasant effort. I hope none of you have tried that. If you haven't, I don't recommend trying it. They're going to be as effective as drunkards who are actually drunk. How effective are drunks at anything? They can't even walk straight. They're going to be as effective as dried stubble in the midst of an open flame. How effective is that? It's effective for one thing, starting the fire. Their plots will be thwarted. This is true for us too in the church. People scheming, plotting against us. God will make an end of their plotting and their scheming. He will thwart it. Okay, well, in verse 12, we get to the second oracle, and this is God directing these words to his people, Judah. It says, Thus says the Lord, though they, that is Assyria, are at full strength in many, they will be cut down and pass away. This is what the Lord's saying. He's saying, hey, I'm not going to wait till Assyria degenerates into this weak and decrepit nation to take them out. Actually, it's going to be the opposite. Actually, Assyria is going to be at the height of their strength with a military of astounding size. And when they're at the height of their strength as a nation, I'm going to cut them down. When it seems the least likely that they are going to, they're going to disappear, that's the moment when I'm going to do it. They're going to be like a mighty giant who looks like he's going to destroy everyone and I'm going to kill them and cut them down. It's like David and Goliath. They're going, to be like, they're going to be cut down like a mighty oak tree that stands tall and falls hard. 
And then the Lord says this in the second half of verse 12, though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. Okay, he's speaking to his people Judah. And notice, notice his sovereignty here. God's not punishing Assyria because he's not sovereign and they're just out of control and he can't do anything about it, so now he has to finally deal with them. No, no, God's been sovereignly using Assyria as the rod of his discipline on his people for their sins. But does God's sovereign use of wickedness justify their wickedness and pride? By no means. By no means. That's why he says he's now going to judge them. These people who were the instrument of God's discipline now are going to become the object of his wrath. But notice, notice what God's judgment of the wicked means for his people. It means, I will afflict you no more. The judgment of the wicked oppressors of the earth means that God's people are afflicted no more. Do you see why it's good news yet? And in and, and verse 13, he, he keeps going along the same theme. And now I will break his yoke off you and I will burst your bonds apart. Th- this image of a yoke, okay? It's, it's, it's a wooden yoke that, that in uh, ancient farming, they would put it over an ox to, to subject this ox to their... I'm stumbling over my words here because I'm not a farmer. They would put this yoke, they would put this ox to work with a yoke on it. Okay. <laughs> but the point is, is a yoke became a metaphor for political subjugation. In the New Testament, when Jerusalem was under the control of Rome, they were under Rome's yoke. Here, Judah is under the yoke of Assyria. Assyria is oppressing and subjugating Judah, and God's saying, I'm going to break their yoke off of you. You get, the, you get a similar imagery with the word bonds. Bonds are iron shackles that were put around their feet. When countries would go conquer another nation, they would put their feet in iron shackles and exile them to another place. And God's saying, that yoke by which they're oppressing you and subjecting you, those bonds by which they're taking you into exile, I'm going to break them. And my judgment on them means no more affliction for you, no more oppression for you, no more subjection for you. You're going to be free. And here's here's one of the things I need to say. One of the reasons I think talking about the good news of God's judgment is so strange to us is because so few of us have experienced this type of affliction. Like, we've got it good, brothers and sisters, but the church for most of our history has not had it like this. Like, when was the last time we've seen churches dragged out and slaughtered for their faith, for their trust in Jesus Christ? When was the last time we've seen somebody burned at the stake? We don't see these things, and praise God we don't see them. It's a blessing for us. But what it means is when we start talking about God's judgment, it feels a little repulsive to talk about the good news of God's judgment on the wicked. But for nations who have tasted that bitterness, that sorrow, that affliction, brothers and sisters, it is good news to hear that the wicked who have done that will be judged and the affliction will be no more. We have to put ourselves in their shoes for us to get this. Well, that's the first oracle of comfort towards Judah. Now God turns again to Nineveh, to Assyria. Look at verse 14. The Lord has given commandment about you. He's speaking to Assyria. And it starts with with God's sovereign decree. It says the Lord has given commandment about you. In other words, even though this hasn't happened yet, in the purposes of God, it's already settled. He's decreed it. It's done. It's happening. Okay, the Lord has given commandment about you. And what is this commandment? It entails three things, okay? That nationally, their name is going to be cut off. 
that their gods are going to be destroyed and defeated, and that they have a grave ready for their corpse, okay? First thing, is, he, first thing is the Lord says, no more shall your name be perpetuated, okay? We have, to put, we have to put ourselves in Judah's time here and know that Assyria was the most powerful empire around at the time. And the Lord is speaking to them nationally here. He says, he says you're the most powerful empire around right now. You have a big name. That's all great. But your name is going into the dust and it's not going to be perpetuated any longer. As a nation, your name is done, right? We, we get that in the ancient world, kings wanted to have a son so that they could do what? So that they could pass along the family name, right? And for a king of a nation like this to not have a son to pass along the family name would mean that his family line would come to a shameful end. And now, now this is talking about nationally. As, as a nation, your name is done, no descendants. See, the Lord's saying, I'm, I'm, you're not going to be scattered into exile. You're going to be extinct as a nation. That's how I'm going to deal with you in response to how you've treated my people and, and all these other nations around them. And then he says the second thing. He says, from the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. Now, Assyria would go in and sack nations. And where was the first place they would go once they defeated that nation? They would go to the temple. And they would take the gods out of the temple and bring them into their own temple back in Assyria and set, their, set the gods from this nation under their gods, right? To show that their gods were more powerful than the gods of these other nations, right? We get a glimpse of this in First and Second Samuel when, when they, the Philistines bring the Ark of the Covenant and put it before Dagon, right? And what happens the next morning when the Philistines wake up? Dagon is falling down before the Ark, and then they, they say, okay, well, somebody must have tipped over Dagon. So they pick him back up, and they, then the next morning they come in, and Dagon is no more Dagon. His hands are gone. His head is gone. Dagon, in Hebrew, it's literally Dagon is gone. Why? Because Yahweh is more powerful than every other god. He is the one true God. This passage says the same thing is going to happen. This nation, Assyria, who's, who goes in and, and destroys these temples and brings the gods in, what I'm going to do... I'm going to destroy them as a nation and I'm going to cut off their gods. I'm going to show all their idols to be worthless. I'm going to show myself to be the one true God who has power over all the earth. Don't you see why God's judgment of the wicked is good news? Don't you want to see God's name vindicated among the nations where there's no question who the true God is? And the last thing he says is, I will make your grave for you are vile. Okay, this word vile has, has connotations of you're small. You think you're a big deal because you're this big nation who has conquered other nations. You're, you're, you're getting a lot of victories. You become this big empire. But actually to me, you're nothing. You are wicked and you are vile and I'm going to make your grave. Well, what does that mean for God's people? Look at verse 15. Again, we turn to the next oracle of comfort for God's people. Okay, and this should sound familiar. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. What is this verse doing here? <laughs> right? This is the same. This is 
This is Nahum quoting a similar phrase from Isaiah 52, and it's a passage that Paul picks up in Romans 10, right? Behold on the mountains the feet of him who brings good news. What is the good news here? Don't take, your, don't take your New Testament and impose it back on this. In this context, what is the good news? It's God's destruction of Assyria. Look at the end of the verse. What is the good news? Keep your feast, O Judah, fulfill your vows. Why? Why this good news where we can worship God? For never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. That's the good news. That's what I'm saying. This, this news of God's judgment in this passage is actually good news. Paul quotes this same passage in Romans 10 for those who preach the gospel. How beautiful upon the mountains are him who preach the good news. The word gospel literally means good news. What is the good news according to Nahum? Right? You have books, the gospel according to Paul, the gospel according to Mark, the gospel according to Jesus. What's the gospel according to Nahum? God will judge the wicked and deliver his people. That's the good news according to Nahum. And it is good news. We shouldn't blush about saying it's good news. It is good news. And notice, notice how imminent this feels, right? This passage has been saying, you know, though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. I will break his bond off you. You know, I will bring them to an end. But now, now he says, look, Look up on the mountains. See this person running who's bringing good news. It's like, it's like it's happening now. Now, this doesn't mean that at that very moment God is destroying Assyria. No, no, no. But it means it's that eminent. In the purposes of God, this is done. And God's people should feel that confidently about it. Look, see this runner coming on the mountains. Why is he running? Not because somebody's chasing him. He's running because he has urgent and excited good news for God's people that Assyria will be defeated. And notice, notice it doesn't say he just brings good news. It says he publishes peace. Literally in Hebrew, shalom. Why peace? Well, because the ones who have been disrupting the peace of God's people are now being judged. Do you see what judgment of the wicked means for God's people? It means peace. It means now they're free to do what? To keep your feasts, O Judah, to fulfill your vows. This is worship of Yahweh, the one true living God. The judgment of the wicked means that God's people are now free to worship Him without interference, without wicked people passing through the land disrupting this. That's what the judgment of the wicked means for God's people, is that you are free to worship and to celebrate and, and to give your all to your God without any interference. You're free to live in peace. We come to chapter 2, and these are the last two oracles, one of judgment and one of comfort, okay? Chapter 2, verse 1 says, The scatterer has come up against you. This is directed to Assyria. This is the Lord speaking to Assyria. He says, The scatterer has come up against you. Man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength. Okay, this is, this is the Lord speaking to Assyria, and he says, The scatterer is here. Okay, notice how, notice how imminent the language is. Again, it goes from I will, I will, I will to behold the mountains, see this man running who brings good news. And for Assyria, not behold the mountains, but look at the scatterer who's coming. Look at this army who's invading. 
Why does God call them the scatterer? Because they're going to be effective in their scattering of this people. This is what Assyria would do to other nations. They would lay siege, and when they defeated them, they would scatter them in exile to the nations. God's saying, what you have done is going to be done to you. My vengeance is not disproportional to, what you, the, the, to the crimes that you've committed. God has already said he's going to bring this nation to an extinction, but there's probably going to be some survivors, and the survivors that are going to be left are going to be scattered to the nations. The scatterer has come upon you. And he calls him the scatterer because he's going to be effective. He's going to be effective. Their fate is set at this point by the command of Yahweh. And then the rest of, the rest of verse 1 here, after the scatterer has come up against you, is a sarcastic taunt, isn't it? If the Lord's saying, I'm going to win, I'm going to destroy you, this is over, essentially, in, my, in the purposes of my will, why does he tell them, man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, collect all your strength? <laughs> I mean, at that point, he's just digging into them, isn't he? He's saying, this is over, the scatterers here, I'm going to destroy you, so why don't you just give it your best shot? This is the last shot you're going to get, so you know, just just get ready, man the ramparts, watch the road, dress for battle, put your helmet on, come on, this is over. This is the Lord taunting the wicked. We have categories in our theology for a God who taunts the wicked. We should. Now verse 2. This is the flip side of God's judgment of the wicked for his people. He says, and, and notice how connected they are. Verse 2 starts with the word for. Okay? It says, The scatterers come up against you. Why? For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob as the majesty of Israel. For the plunderers have plundered them and ruined their branches. Do you see the connection there? The Lord is judging Assyria. Why? Because he's restoring his people. This is not the Lord doing a work of judgment on the one hand and then a work of restoration on the other hand that are disconnected from one another. No, these are the same event. This is the same event, and for one people, it's going to mean judgment. And for God's people, it's going to mean restoration. He's judging them for the sake of restoring his people to himself. This is personal. We already saw this. They're plotting against Yahweh. They're plotting against the Lord. Why? Because he's bound himself to his covenant people. If the Lord's going to restore his people, it means he must judge this nation who is afflicting them. He's doing it for their sake. Do you see it? Yes, he's doing it because the wicked deserve judgment. That is true. But this passage goes deeper than that. God's judging the wicked, yes, because they deserve judgment, but also for the sake of his people. Restoring them to himself. Everything we see in this passage is not separated. This is not judgment on the one hand and comfort on the other. This is the same event that means judgment for them and comfort for them. Do you see that? God's promise of judgment and his promise of comfort are one. They're one promise. God, the wicked get the judgment and God's people get the comfort. Do you, see why, do you see why God's judgment of the wicked means your hope and comfort? It means the end of affliction. It means peace. It means the end of oppression. It means freedom to worship God. It means your, the restoration of God's people to himself. Okay, now I've got four takeaways from this passage. Four takeaways, okay? First one is live in the tension. Live in the tension. 
What, what do I mean when I say live in the tension? Well, we just finished the book of Jonah. And what was the point of the book of Jonah? The book of Jonah was to help us reflect on God's heart for his enemies. And now we're in the book of Nahum where we're talking about the good news of God's judgment on his enemies. Does anyone feel jarred by that? Okay, if you're not going to be vulnerable, I will. I feel jarred by that. I feel intention because of that. What does that mean? That means I'm getting it. If you feel jarred by that, good. That means you're getting it. There's a tension here. Yes, we should have God's heart of mercy towards our enemies, his enemies. We should long to see them repent and turn to him and and receive God's mercy. And yes, when they refuse to repent and God judges them, we should feel comforted by that. In that order. The order is important. Both of them are true. We must have God's heart of mercy towards his enemies, towards our enemies, and long to see them repent. And if, when they refuse to repent and God judges them, we must find that to be a hope and comfort because of the reasons we've already seen in this passage. Now, we have to be honest. There are probably some of us in this room who are repulsed at the thought of finding God's judgment of the wicked to be a comfort. Right? There, there are some of us who, who that feels too barbaric for me to feel comforted by God's judgment of the wicked. And there are some of us, on the other hand, that are probably rushing too quickly to, de- to delight in God getting our enemies, right? Like, oh yeah, this is the best message I've heard in years. <laughs> and I, I want to tell you both responses are understandable but wrong. For, for those of us who feel repulsed at the idea of finding comfort in God's judgment of the wicked, I I just want to ask you, do you really want to live in a society where the wicked are not judged? Do you want to live in a society where murderers and tyrants are not held accountable? I want to tell you, that society will be more violent and ruthless than you can even fathom, and it only takes a small taste of it to realize why God's judgment of the wicked is a good thing. It only takes a small taste of that kind of world to realize that God holding wicked people accountable is a good thing. And for those of us who are too quickly rushing to delight in God's judgment of the wicked, I want to just tell you, you need to go back to the book of Jonah and sit there for a while until you learn the message that Jonah was meant to learn. Like you've missed the point of the whole last series, the last four weeks, last five weeks. And you need to hear God's heart of mercy towards his enemies. And only after, only after they have refused to repent and provoked God continually and God turns to judge them, are you to find comfort in that? There's a balance here, isn't there? Jim Simons always tells the story about Martin Luther. Well, it was Martin Luther's story. Jim Simons quotes it. So I'm quoting you know, two sources here. Jim Simons, who quoted Martin Luther. But Martin Luther talks about this analogy of a drunk man who's trying to climb up onto a horse and he falls off on the other side. And then he tries from that side, tries to climb back up on the horse, and then he falls off on the other side. And Martin Luther says, us as humans, we're like that. We're like a drunk man trying to climb on a horse. We so easily fall off to the other side when we're climbing on from the one side. Same way with this. Okay, that's the first point. Live in the tension. Live in the tension. Second point, get your enemies right. Get your enemies right. It would be wrong for us to come to this passage and then start, start being comforted by the thought of God judging our political or geopolitical enemies. 
Now, Nahum does not apply to us as American Christians in a one-to-one fashion. Yes, other nations in this world do pose a threat to America. And that is a very real threat. And God sees that. He cares about it. But listen, not everyone in those geopolitical nations is an enemy of God, right? The leaven of the kingdom is still working its way through all the nations of this world and give it 50 or 100 years. And you might just see that there are more Christians in those nations than there are in America, which means they are primarily not your enemies, but your brothers and sisters. You must not think merely in terms of political and geopolitical enemies, The leaven of the kingdom has changed all that. God is rescuing people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Same thing with political enemies. There might be people on the other side of the political aisle who disagree with you on every issue. And listen, some of those issues are deeply connected to Christian worldview. But they might be rescued by Jesus in a couple of years. Be your brothers and sisters. And actually, actually, there might be people who love America, who are in agreement with you on every political issue, and yet living in brazen rebellion against God, and therefore are his enemies and yours. Where are your allegiances at? Yes, America matters. Yes, political issues matter. But do, does, who, does the commitment of other people to Jesus matter more than those things? You go to 2 Thessalonians 1 and it says that Jesus is going to return with his angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on who? On those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the the defining factor of who our enemies are. People who refuse to bow the knee to King Jesus. And to take Nahum and apply it in a one-to-one fashion to political and geopolitical enemies is to apply this this passage in a way that is foolishly nearsighted. Don't do that. Define your enemies rightly. Third, let this set you free. Let this set you free. What do I mean by that? We live in a fallen and broken world where people suffer, people become victims of horrible, horrible acts of evil. Every one of us in this room probably knows somebody who has been the victim of a horrible, horrible, vile act of evil. Whether it's rape, being molested, you name it. The list could go on and on, sadly. Do you, do you want to know one of the sad things about being a victim of that kind of evil? Is it can consume your life. It can consume your life, whether by, whether, whether by just wanting to be bitter and get vengeance and, and, and pay those people back. Or some people, it just becomes so painful that they turn to alcohol or drugs to try to numb the pain a little bit. We've known families where, where they've, they've been treated horribly by their parents. And most of those children have turned to drugs and alcohol to try to numb the pain. One of them's turned to Jesus. And their paths could not be more different. What is your hope if you've suffered that kind of evil? Where can you turn to if you've suffered that kind of evil? How can you avoid, when you've been the victim, avoid then being consumed for the rest of your life by bitterness, vengeance, or just turning to something to try to numb the pain you've experienced? You turn it over to the wrath of God. You know in Romans 12, Paul says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but do what? But leave it to the wrath of God. 
As it is written, vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. I will repay. Listen, if we don't have a God of wrath, you don't have a God you can entrust your sufferings to so that you can move on with your life. Your life very likely could be consumed by bitterness and addiction, not because of some evil that you've done, but because some evil that's done to you. If you don't have a God of wrath, you don't have a God you can entrust that to. He will make it right. He will repay, declares the Lord. And Paul says, don't avenge yourself. Entrust it to this God who's going to judge. Elizabeth Sherrill, this author writes about how when she was in Germany in 1968, she said she spent several days at a retreat center in Darmstadt, Germany. While at the center, they were having, they had two speakers in attendance who were Holocaust survivors. She said the first man was a man who had been a prisoner in a concentration camp. He had been brutalized and starved. His father and a brother had died in the camp. The man's face and body told the story more eloquently than his words. Pain-haunted eyes, shaking hands that could not forget. He was followed at the lectern by a white-haired woman, broad of frame and sensible of shoe, with a face that radiated love, peace, and joy. But the story that these two people related was the same. She, too, had been in a concentration camp, experienced the same savagery, suffered identical losses. The man's response was easy to understand, but hers... This was Corey Ten Boom, a Christian follower of Jesus who had a God who loved sinners, who offered forgiveness and mercy to the wicked, and yet who would in the end make everything right and judge them. You have suffered evil. You, you can be hardened and, and embittered and consumed by the evil done to you, or you can entrust it to a God who's going to judge the wicked and make all things right and repay and radiate love and warmth. And the reality is, you don't even have to tell the story. Your face tells it for you. You can tell just by looking somebody in the face whether they've been hardened by suffering or whether the reality of God has set them free from what they've experienced. This is what the wrath of God means for you. Let it set you free. Fourth, look for the, long for the fulfillment of this passage. Long for the fulfillment of this passage. Okay? Now, you may be wondering, hasn't this passage already been fulfilled? Right? In 612 BC, Assyria was destroyed, never to rise again. Archaeologists have discovered the ruins of the city, the civilization. Wasn't it already fulfilled? If you look back through this passage, the promises seem way more definitive than merely the end of Assyria. Let's look back through these passages, and you'll see that these promises point way beyond the horizon of Judah and Assyria. Look, look back at verse 12. It says, Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. Now, if you, if, you, if you look back at history, the Lord knocked down Assyria only for who to be standing right behind them? Babylon. All right, this is pretty patronizing if the Lord's just talking about Assyria. I'm going to afflict you no more. Boom, Assyria's down. Babylon's waiting. Next in line. This passage points way beyond the defeat of Assyria. Look at verse 
Look at verse 15. Behold upon the mountains the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. That is shalom. Now shalom is way more than just absence from war. Shalom, shalom means that every corner of your life is characterized by perfect rest, gladness, and joy. Shalom means everything is well, everything is the way it should be. Now, let me ask you, did that characterize Judah after the defe- defeat of Assyria? No way. No way. Look at the end of verse 15. Never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Was that fulfilled already? No. Again, Assyria goes down. Babylon's next in line. Look at, verse, look at chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Scatterers come up against you. You're going to be destroyed. Why? For the Lord is restoring the majesty of Jacob. Has God's people been fully restored? And I'm, just, I'm, not just talk, I'm not talking about ethnic Israel. I'm talking about God's people. Have they been fully restored to God? Has God's plan of restoring the nations to himself been fulfilled yet? No. This passage is not done yet. This passage points so far beyond the horizon of Assyria and Judah. This passage looks to Revelation 21 and 22. See, in Revelation, you you get into the New Testament, and Jesus does what? Jesus destroys the enemies of sin, Satan, and death. You go to 1 Corinthians 15, it says that Jesus is reigning, and he must reign until every enemy is put under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And why does Jesus Jesus destroy his enemies? Verse 2 says it's for the sake of restoring his people to himself. You get to Revelation 21 and 22, and, and God judges all the wicked forever. And what, why does he do that according to this passage? For the, restake, for the sake of restoring all of his people to himself in peace, in security on the new heavens and the new earth. This story is not done yet. The fulfillment is yet to come. God will ultimately judge the wicked, not just because they're wicked, but for the sake of restoring us as his people. He does it for our sake so that we might be restored to him in peace and security and gladness in his presence forevermore where we will hear the words, I will afflict you no more. There's shalom as the reigning reality of your soul where where every conceivable corner of your existence is is characterized as peace, gladness, rest, joy, all is well, all is the way it should be, where you will worship the Lord forevermore. That is what the judgment of the wicked will mean for you. When the wicked are consigned to eternal judgment, there is no longer any threat towards you, no longer any threat of affliction, no longer any interruption in your fellowship with God forevermore. Salvation is complete in Revelation 21 and 22 after the wicked have been consigned to judgment forevermore and you are secure in God's presence. Yes, we are not there yet, which means your response now needs to start with mercy. Starts with evangelism, calling people to repentance, pleading with them that they would not be judged by God because they would find refuge in Jesus. But in the end, when people refuse to repent of their violence and wickedness and cruelty, you take comfort when they are judged because it means the finality of your salvation. Don't you long for that day? God's judgment is good news for God's people in the end. Amen? Let's pray.
Lord, this is a difficult passage for us. Help us see, help us see that your judgment is always after prolonged patience and long suffering and, and wanting to show mercy, Lord. And in the end, when you finally do judge, help us see that it is good and right and just, and your justice is a good thing. Help us to find it a comfort, Lord. Thank you that you promised to make all things right. We give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen.